Before we pray and get started, I mentioned faith, hope, and love. They're so important in Paul's framework of thinking in his theology. So I thought I'd just put a few up here and I've run out of time. There are many, many more passages where you can connect faith, hope, and love. But this is 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Romans 5, 1 through 5, 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, and I think also 5, 8, and then Colossians 1, 4, and 5, and maybe that'll get you started uh, where you'll start looking wherever you see one of those three, look in the context, and you'll probably find one of the others, and sometimes all three of them. So faith, hope, and love are really, really important. Um, so just to kind of quickly review, you know, 1 Corinthians 15, 22 reminds us, in Adam all die. We are all spiritually dead in Adam. We are born separated from God and under condemnation. In Christ, all are made alive. And we're made alive for a purpose. Not just to save us from hell, not just so we can go to heaven but to actually play a part in God's plan. <clears throat> I'll make this little point, and it's an important one. God's will is known through God's Word. God reveals His will for all of us. God's plan has to be discovered. You see the difference? He tells us what His will is for all of us. He doesn't tell us what gift we have. He doesn't tell us where He wants us to live. He doesn't tell us how He wants us to serve. That's something that has to be discovered as we do His will. If we follow His will, we will discover His plan. And His plan, of course, is different for each and every one of us. So don't ever forget those two things. We don't just want to do the will of God. We also want to do the plan of God. Of course, the plan of God is His will for you personally. But as I say, you can't find that in the Scripture. Where does God want me to live? Who does God want me to marry? What does God want me to do in service? Those are things that have to be discovered in our relationship with Him. So we've looked at the downward path of Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. And I would encourage you to go back to those passages. <clears throat> the Bible makes no mistakes. And the fact that there are seven steps down in Ephesians 3, 17 to 19, and then in James 4, 7 to 10, there are seven steps of recovery. That's not an accident. And even though I promised you last time that I was only going to go to 1 Corinthians and Romans, I'm going to have to break the promise because I have to show you the path that we're supposed to be on. So turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, and we'll get the seven steps Upward. You've got seven steps of disobedience and rebellion, seven steps of spiritual recovery. Let's look at the seven steps of spiritual growth. We'll do this real quick. It's very self-evident, and I won't need to spend a lot of time on it. Let's just quickly pray and ask God's blessing. After this session, we're going to take a little bit of a break. We're going to come back. If you have questions of anything that I haven't made clear or even something completely unrelated, I'll do my very best to answer the questions. And when the questions are done, we're out of here. Okay, so let's pray. 
Father, we come back uh, after feeding the body. We're well fed. The ladies here have taken wonderful care of us. Father, we want to continue to feed the spirit, the inner man. And so we ask that God, the Holy Spirit, would break for us the bread of life, nourish and strengthen us in the inner man, and help us to continue to build that spiritual muscle that will make us strong and effective in your service. And we will give you the thanks and the praise in Jesus' name, amen. Second Peter, as I say, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I'll, I'll read it, and I think you'll pick up on it very quickly. Verses 1 to 4, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us. We all have the same faith, as I said earlier, the same provisions. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the way, the deity of Christ clearly declared there. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. God is a mathematician. He subtracts our sins. He adds to us the righteousness of Christ. And then he multiplies his grace. What a great plan. Verse 3, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue. Everything you and I need for godliness, we find provided for in his spirit and in his word. What is godliness? 1 Timothy 3.16, Christ in the flesh. Godliness in our life is when Christ is living through us. Remember Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16, great is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh. When Jesus Christ is manifest in your flesh and my flesh in this physical body, that's what godliness is all about. So great is godliness. Verse 4, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises so that by these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world through lust. Look here. Here is the corruption that's in the world. That's the path we don't want to follow. If we're on that path, we want to recover because we want to move on into life and godliness. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life, that's eternal life, and that you may have it abundantly. What is the abundant? It's everything he wants to do for you and I in our Christian life. Sure, it includes heaven. Yeah, we have a lot to look forward to. Don't miss out on the here and now. The plan of God for your life right now is thrilling, it's exciting, it's motivating, it's stimulating, it's satisfying, it's fulfilling. What more can I say? Get into the plan. Live the plan as he reveals it to you moment by moment, day by day. And you know, when you don't know what to do, here's a simple formula to always fall back on. Find someone who needs something and supply the need. Somewhere around you, there's a need that you can supply. You can fulfill that need. A word of encouragement, letting someone know that their life is worthwhile, that they're valuable to God, that their life is unique, special, and, and uh, just a gift from God. Let them know that. 
challenge people, encourage people, exhort people, help people in every way that you can. Your life will always have meaning as long as someone around you has a need and you're willing to fit, fill the bill and, and meet the need. There's always a reason for each and every day. All right, here we go. Seven steps of spiritual growth, starting right here at the moment of faith. How am I going to grow? Here it is, verse 5. But also for this very reason, what very reason? That we may become partakers of the divine nature, giving all diligence. Diligence means strong inner motivation. You have to be motivated. You can't steer a ship that's not moving. We have to be willing to follow the path. So giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. That's step number one. You say, what is virtue? Well, virtue, the way Peter is using it, is referring to something very unique and special because he used that word virtue earlier up in verse 3. God has called us by His glory and virtue. The word virtue is arete in the Greek language, and it refers to a display of divine power. A display, they used it in the ancient world, of athletes who had a God-like power. On the playing field, on the track, on, in the wrestling mat, here was a guy who had virtue. And that was a word they used for someone who was able to display excellent power. Just amazing power. So if you and I are going to add to our faith virtue, what would you think that power would be? Well, you may not be able to answer it, but I'm going to tell you the answer. It is the filling of the Holy Spirit. Step number one in spiritual growth is to make sure not only have I believed Jesus Christ, but I am now living this day in the filling of the Spirit. How do I be filled with the Spirit? It's very simple. Make sure the vessel's clean, confess any sin, correct any wrong action. The Holy Spirit will automatically fill a clean vessel. How do I know that? Paul tells us. Second Timothy. I'm running out of room. Second Timothy 2, 20 to 22. In a great house, there are many kinds of vessels, some for honor, some for dishonor. If any man cleanses himself from these things, referring to the sins that he's been talking about, he will be a vessel of honor fit for the master's use. That's what Paul calls in Ephesians 5.18, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Clean the vessel. You know the old saying, if you build it, they will come. I change it. If you clean it, he will come. Just clean it and he will fill it. All right, so add virtue. And then what? To your virtue, knowledge. I'm just abbreviating with the letters. If I'm filled with the Spirit and I'm in digging in the Word of God, I'm on my way to spiritual growth. So I make sure that I am submitted to God, that the Spirit of God is in control, and I add knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control. What does self-control mean? Self-control means that we let the knowledge that we have learned control our life. The word that I have heard, the word that I have learned now becomes the controller of my life. I'm in submission to the authority of God's word. Self-control. 
To self-control, perseverance. He. Perseverance means what? All right, I'm filled with the Spirit, studying God's Word, I'm obeying God's Word, now keep on keeping on. Simple perseverance. The race is not over. You got to run it to the finish. Just keep on keeping on. Every day I wake up, am I filled with the Spirit? Am I in the Word? Am I letting the Word control my life? I got to keep on keeping on. Today, tomorrow, the next day, I keep doing the same things. And to your perseverance, godliness, big G. What does godliness mean? Once again, 1 Timothy 3.16, I'm beginning to see Christ live in me. I have compassion for people that I never had compassion for. I hold my tongue when I want to run someone else down. I see a need and I run to fill it. I'm beginning to see Christ living in me. What did Paul say? I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. Christ lives in me. That's godliness. Godliness is not getting sanctimonious and carrying your Bible a special way and using holier-than-thou language. It is just letting Christ live through you. Godliness is going to lead us to... BL, and that's not BLT, bacon, lettuce, and tomato. BL is brotherly love. If you sense that you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ like you should, the reason is lack of growth, not trying. Don't try to fake the love of Christ. Grow and the love of Christ will come through you. As you get into godliness, which is Christ living through you, brotherly love is not going to be a problem. It's going to be natural. It is just going to come because the love of Christ is flowing from you to other people and to your brotherly love. Love. That's love for every member of the human race. That's love for your enemies. You can't produce in your own energy love for your enemies. doesn't work that way. It can only come through spiritual growth. And if you learn to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, some of whom are not very lovable. We know that. If you can love them, you can grow to the point where you have a genuine love for those out there in the world. You desire to see them come to Christ you desire to see them escape the penalty of hell. You want them to enter into the family of God. Every time you see in the news, someone was just asking me about what's going on in Israel. And listen, we are in end times. This is end time stuff. We could be looking at the beginning stages of the Ezekiel 38 war. Christ is standing at the gate. The rapture is drawing near day by day. We have no time to waste. But as we see all of this happening and we look on the atrocities that have been performed and we recognize the savagery and the barbarity and all the rest of it, let that compel you to pray for those people to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. When you get irritated, aggravated, incensed at our absolutely insane politicians, let that drive you to pray for them that they will come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Because that's the only solution. The only solution is life in Christ. So pray for them. And I want you to notice that he tells us, 
What's going to happen if we follow this upward path of, isn't it amazing? Seven steps down, seven steps of recovery, seven steps of spiritual growth. It's almost like God worked that out, right? Seven being the number of perfection in God's plan. So what happens if we follow this? Verse 8. If these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your life is going to be full of fruit. Fruit trees don't produce fruit by straining. Apple trees don't go, there's an apple. No, it just flows through them from the root. Our life becomes fruitful. Notice that he says, <coughs> In verse 9, for he who lacks these things, <clears throat> that is the believer who lacks these things, is short-sighted even to the point of blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. He's forgotten. Again, he's gone into that phase of alienation and darkening and blinding and hardening. Who wants to live life in that condition? Don't live like a blind man. Don't forget what Christ has done for you. Verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. Here's another advantage. It's going to keep you from falling down and staying down. All of us get tripped up. There's a difference between getting tripped up and staying down. You're not going to stay down. You're going to rise right back up to the top like a cork pushed underwater. You turn it loose, it pops back to the top, and you're going to keep on moving. The final advantage or benefit here in verse 11, so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, meaning when you enter into the kingdom, you're going to have a crown waiting for you. You ever sing the old song, Will There Be Any Stars in My Crown? You better get the crown first. The Bible talks about different crowns. Paul talks about the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me, and not to me only, but to all who love his appearance. You can have that crown. How? Live life in light of the fact that he's coming back and I'm looking for his coming and I want to live in a way that is going to honor him when he arrives. So how wonderful to follow this path. And if you get on the downward path, find the, find the path that leads back. Find the path of the prodigal that comes back to the father, gets restored to fellowship and becomes useful again and starts growing in grace and truth. That's a very short, I could spend days or weeks on this, but I wanted you to see the path of spiritual growth. Go with me to 1 Corinthians. And by the way, the application of all of this stuff that we're studying is coming tomorrow. I hope you'll be here tomorrow. Jared, you usually pretty much do the same message, both classes? I, I do. So, but we were going to... So we, yeah, well, we, we do the same in our church. And when I get the opportunity to fill in for the pastor, I do the same class. I'm going to do the same class tomorrow, first and second session. But I want to tell you this, it won't be the same. Because yeah. I just can't, I just can't repeat the same thing, right? 
The, the second one will be the same passage, but it'll be whatever the Spirit makes it. I never know till it happens. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. Again, what are we trying to talk about? We're trying to talk about unity in the body. We're trying to talk about team spirit. How do we build it? Before we can figure out how to build it, and again, tomorrow is going to fill in a lot of those questions, we have to understand what is it that destroys it. We have to understand what's going wrong before we can solve that problem and get back to what's right. So we're still dealing with the problem and we're looking in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Amazingly, as Paul opens this book to the 1 Corinthians, he tells them about seven things they have going for them. I don't know how this keeps happening. There must be a hand behind the curtain moving things. But I just quickly want you to see here in the first eight verses, seven things. I'm going to read it, then I'm going to point them out. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called saints, all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Jesus, by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end. What are the seven things? Here they are. Number one, you are sanctified in Christ and called saints. See that? Verse two, to be sanctified means to be set apart from the world to God. And because you are sanctified, you bear the title saint. Who is a saint? Anyone who is set apart in Christ. Okay, that's number one. Number two, look down in verse four. I thank God always concerning you for the grace of God given to you. You have been given the grace of God. God's grace has been lavished on each and every one of us. We are the recipients of the grace of God. Number three, we have been enriched in everything by him in all utterance and knowledge. Why? Because we have book right in front of us. The word of God was among them. They didn't have the whole New Testament like we do, but there were prophets, there were apostles, there were evangelists who were uttering, <coughs> excuse me, the truth of God's word to this congregation. They had the word of God being given to them. Number four, the testimony of Christ was confirmed in them. In other words, they said, I am a believer and that, Confession had been proved true. I am a child of God by faith in Christ, and it was confirmed by things that they had done. They had vindicated the claim of their faith in Christ by their actions. Number five, they came behind in no gift. They were a gifted church. By the way, this is a gifted church. Do you know how I know that? because I know that God never fails to supply the gifts that are needed. The gifts are here. 
the gifts of the Spirit. Notice number six, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that all of us are eagerly waiting. They were, we should be, they were 2,000 years ago. We certainly ought to be waiting for it. And number seven, it was certain beyond the shadow of a doubt that they would be confirmed in the end as having belonged to the Lord Jesus Christ, blameless in the day that Jesus Christ returns. When you stand in the presence of Jesus Christ, you are going to stand in his presence blameless. Isn't that wonderful? A gifted church, a spiritually rich church. And you know what? It was a church that was full of problems. I don't have my Corinthian notes here. Uh, you can probably get them online. There were 13 sins going on in the Corinthian church. With all that they had, with all that God gave them, they were stunted in their growth. They were hindered in their ministry because of all of the sin that was going on in the church. How can a church that is so gifted be so spiritually stunted? Well, that's what we want to find out. Because our question is, if Christ has established a unity for us in the Spirit, and we're not experiencing that unity, what's causing the problem? Well, let's find out. Verse 10. I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you. Go back to James chapter 4. Where do wars and fighting come from among you? Go back to Ephesians. Don't walk as the Gentiles walk. Let there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Spiritual unity. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. The moment that Paul heard that there was fighting and division among the Corinthian church, he knew exactly what the cause was, and we should know what the cause is when it's in our churches. Verse 12, now this I say that each of you says, I am of, a Paul, of Paul, I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided, or was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Do you know that the Corinthian church is where denominations originated? Did you know that? They had a denomination called the Church of Christ. And they had a denomination called the Church of Paul. And another denomination was the Church of Apollos, and another was called the Church of Cephas or the Church of Peter. And the problem is these four denominations were all in one church. Can you imagine what kind of chaos that would produce? And now we have Church of Christ, and we have Baptist Church, we have Pentecostal Church, and it goes on and on and on and on and on, and we can't fellowship together, and we can't work together because I am of whatever denomination, and you're of another denomination. And the issue should not be the denomination, it should be the Word of God. Do you know why it is so hard to go on the mission field and teach people who have been hit with these various denominations. Once you get a denominational mindset, you can't listen to the Word of God. 
because it doesn't fit what you, our group believes this. Yeah, but the Bible says, don't confuse me with the facts. My denomination believes this. And once you get into that denominational mindset, you are deprived forever from being able to advance in the scriptures. I don't know about you, but you know how I feel? I've been studying this book over 50 years. You know what? If I'm wrong about something, I want somebody to show me. I want to be open enough that if someone says, hey, I think you're seeing this scripture wrong, let me, let me give you some insight. And I look at it and I see the evidence. I'm, I'm going to go, hey, man, thank you for coming along because I don't want to teach what's false. I want to teach what's true. Why would we not want to know what's true? And yet so many times I go to people that have a theological framework that they judge everything by and you can put the scripture right in front of them and they'll tell you straight out, I don't believe that because I am a whatever. Not. That's tragic. That's frightening, right? All right, so let's move on. Christ is not divided. It's not about the men. It's not about the messenger. It's about Christ. And we learn of Him and come to know Him through His Word. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He develops this thought a little further. Verse 9, as it is written, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. Too often we stop right there. Notice what Paul says, verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. There is much more that God wants us to know than we know today. As long as I'm on this earth, I'm going to continue to plumb the depths of this book because I have never studied a book twice and come up with exactly the same understanding. It's always deeper, broader, wider, more wonderful. <clears throat> Verse 11, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? What are you thinking right now? I don't know what you're thinking. The person sitting next to you doesn't know what you're thinking. The only person who knows what you're thinking, what you're aiming at, what your goals are, your motives, is you, right? You know you. You don't know me. I don't know you in that sense, right? Verse 12 says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that, here's the purpose, we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Who can tell us what God's thoughts are? What is valuable to Him? What is precious to Him? Who can tell us? The Spirit of God. And we have the Spirit of God, right? The Spirit has been given to us freely by God. Verse 13, Paul says, These things we, that is apostles, we also speak not in words that man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And I like to take spiritual with spiritual in two different ways. Number one, we let Scripture interpret Scripture. Spiritual Scripture interprets spiritual Scripture. Number two, spiritual Scripture is interpreted by spiritual men. Spirit of God's in control the whole way. 
right? Which is absolutely marvelous. Now we run into the people who receive Scripture. There are three kinds of people who have Scripture explained to them. There's the book. And the book goes to three kinds of people. Number one, natural. What does that mean? Unsaved. The natural man, Paul says, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him and he cannot know them because they're discerned by the Spirit. If he's a natural man, he doesn't have the Spirit. Remember what Jude says in Jude 18 about false teachers? They're false teachers. They have ulterior motives. They, they uh, <clears throat> flatter people for gain. Uh, they're like the brute beasts. On and on and on. He describes them all. And then in Jude verse 18, he says having not the Spirit. They've never been born again. They don't have the new man created in them. Therefore, how can they understand it? Paul says the natural man cannot, by the way, the word for natural, sukikos, soulish. Why does he call them soulish? Because the soul is as deep as they go. They have a body. They have a soul. They have no spirit. The soulish man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. But he goes on to say in verse 15, but he who is spiritual, the spiritual man, here's the ideal, spiritual man, that means he is filled with the Holy Spirit. The spiritual man judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. In other words, the spiritual man, little by little, gradually, is going to continue gaining insight, illumination, understanding, wisdom, and it's going to be a lifelong process as he goes through the entire Word of God. And yet, no one is going to be able to evaluate him because he's being moved and motivated by the Spirit of God dwelling within. And you can look at him and say, I think and try to evaluate him, and you'll probably be wrong. What did the Pharisees do with Christ? I think he's a false prophet. I think he is a deceiver. I think he is... Some even thought he was the illegitimate child of a Roman soldier and Mary. I mean, the different, you know, viewpoints of who is he. Who do men say that I am? Well, some say Elijah. Some say John the Baptist come back from the dead. Some say Jeremiah. Men can have all kinds of ideas about who Christ is. Who can know who he is? Only those who are his. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. The spiritual man rightly understands the word of God. Verse 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord that we may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. We have his mind right here. <coughs> Excuse me. This is his mind. 
You don't know what he thinks? I don't know anyone who loves someone else. I don't know any young man that ever fell in love with a gorgeous young woman that didn't want to know what's really going on in her brain. Does she really love me? She, she loved me. She loved me not. She loved me. You know, the old plucking the petunias or whatever. <coughs> you want to know what's going on in their mind. If you love someone, you are never going to stop trying to learn and understand what's going on in their deepest recesses of their mind, their heart, and their soul. I want to know what makes you tick. I want to know what you think. I want to know what motivates you. I want to know what you appreciate. I want to know what I can do to please you. That's a driving force. Wherever love exists, there is a never-ending desire to know this person. Next year, this gorgeous young lady sitting over here and I have been married 50 years. I know she looks I know she looks half my age. You know, I always tell guys, you know it's wonderful having a wife that's half your age. Um I still don't you know, she still surprises me. You guys that have been married a long time, you ever still get surprised? Where in the world did that come from? Right? What exactly did you mean by that? There's still more to learn. If that's true in a human relationship, what in the world do we think about our relationship with the infinite God? With the resurrected Christ? And I want to know him. What was the driving force of Paul's life? Philippians 3.10. You know what it was? This was his motto. That I may know him. Paul the apostle. Paul the missionary. Paul the evangelist. Paul the theologian. And what was the driving force of his life? That I may know him. I want to know him more. I want to know him better. I want to know him deeper. That ought to be the driving force in our life. And so he goes on to say in chapter 3 and verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal. Here's our third kind of man. Natural man, unbeliever. Spiritual man, believer in fellowship with God. Carnal man, that's a believer who is not living his life in fellowship with God. The word for carnal is sarkinos, and it means motivated by self. We've kind of come full circle, haven't we, since the beginning of the day? Motivated by self. What destroys unity in a church? What keeps us from that band of brothers mentality? Motivated for self. Any of you guys like athletics? Football teams, basketball teams, baseball teams, whatever. <clears throat> Have you ever seen an athlete, and the, the history of athletics is full of guys like this, one of the most talented, one of the most capable one of the most skillful players in any sport, if he thinks it's all about him, is he going to be a good team player? He will destroy the team. 
because it's all about Him getting recognition and glory. And that's about the best illustration I can give of what destroys churches. It's all about me. Sometimes it can be the pastor. Sometimes it can be the music team. You know, there are a lot of music teams that are all about performance and not really about leading people in worship. We want to put ourselves in the background. We want to hide ourselves so that the person of Christ and His glory is out there in front of us and anything that we can do to enhance letting Him be the one that is seen, we need to do. I've often thought it would almost be good. I guess people that listen to the classes online have this advantage. Like the old Wizard of Oz behind the curtain, you can hear the voice, but you can't see the man. Sometimes I think that would be an advantage. Just hide the person and and just let the message come through. Of course, I had a guy show up at my first church in Conway many years ago, and he said, I've been listening to you for years, and he said, you look totally different than I expected. I said, well, what did you expect? And he said, I, I thought you were a little short, fat, bald guy. I said, well, I'm glad you were wrong. Look at what he says here in 1 Corinthians 3. You are still carnal. Oh, verse 2. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. Even now you're still not able. These people have been Christians for years. And they still can't grow up. They're like little babies running around, messing their diapers, throwing a fit, and they won't grow up. Verse 3, for you're still carnal, for where there's envy, strife, and division among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Question for you. Is it possible to be a Christian and live like an unbeliever? I will tell you that there are a whole bunch of theologians today who will tell you that's not possible. Well, Paul says it is. It's right there in black and white right in front of us. You guys are acting like unsaved people. You are living your lives like unbelievers. And therefore, Paul says, you are carnal. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? You know, I used to spend a lot of time arguing with Calvinists. I've never gained one because... You show them the scripture and they won't believe it because it differs with their theology. But now when I run into them and they want to debate, I say, I can't debate you. And they say, why not? Don't you have any answers? And I said, no, you're carnal. To begin with, you're carnal. And and there's no sense trying to debate with a carnal person. They say, well, where do you get that from? I said, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. I'm of whoever. I'm of Calvin, I'm of Martin Luther, I'm of... I wonder, do you think John Calvin or Martin Luther were as great as Paul? Do you think they were? I don't think so. If Paul said even claiming him as the head of your group is wrong, how much worse to claim any other head? You know? I could go on and on. Let's go to Romans. I think you're getting the point. I hope you are. I told my wife this is going to be a totally different conference because instead of 
trying to spend a lot of time in a single given text and dig and dig and dig. I want to just kind of lay the passages out. I think they speak for themselves. We don't want to be on the downward path. If we are, we need to get on the recovery path. But the main goal is the path of growth. That's the point. Because I'll tell you without any doubt, and I've seen it happen where people finally wake up and realize this, if you and you and you are in the Spirit, in fellowship with the Lord, you may not agree on every point, but you know what? That'll never bring you to a point of division. You just won't. You know why? Because one of the qualities of Christ-likeness is a willingness to be silent. There are times the best thing we can do is be silent. Amen. There are times when we don't have to have every answer. Our Lord, if you study Him carefully, as He was constantly, He never went seeking the, the Pharisees to debate with Him. I'm going to go debate Him and make Him look stupid again. He never did that. He went about his life blessing people where he had the opportunity to feed them, to heal them, to enrich their lives. He went about doing that and he was constantly under attack. And I'm astounded when they would attack him how gracious and how meek and how gentle his response was. He could have blown them out of the water at any moment. Instead, he tried to reason with them. He tried to explain to them. He tried to draw them in. Have you ever heard the little poem? He drew a circle that shut me out, a heretic, a rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that drew him in. That's how you win. Oh, you want to thrust me away as unclean, untouchable? I'll embrace you. I baptized a guy in India many years ago, had leprosy. This left side of his face was gone. You could see his jawbone, cheekbone, teeth, had huge lesions on his skin. None of the pastors had baptized him. They didn't want to touch him. And I went into that water and I motioned for him to come. I baptized him last. I wanted to get everybody else out of the way, and I motioned to him. And he was standing there, and I know in his mind he was thinking, they won't touch me. Nobody will touch me. And I pointed at him, and I motioned him, and he came into the water, and I took that man, and I put him down, and I brought him up out of the water, and he had a smile all over his face, because literally you could see it from ear to ear and threw his arms around me, and I hugged that guy, and my face was right smack against the rotten side of his face. And you know what? If I'd have gotten leprosy and died from it, it would have been worth it. You just can't think like a normal human being when the Spirit of God is motivating you. There is something that is so much more important than anything of this world, anything of time, anything that relates to the material realm. We are on a plane that this world cannot comprehend. Romans 8. 
there is now only a little bit of condemnation to those who are in Christ. What? Your, your Bible reads different? <coughs> there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. There is a lot of discussion. Romans 8 is one of the three disputed passages in Romans. There, there are three that are hotly debated. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I like to just stop at there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Um, the, the phrase, who do not walk according to the flesh, according to the Spirit, if that's part of the original text, that's fine, but it's made clear down in verse 4. It's made clear what he means. But I like to just stop and pause and let Christians reflect on this for a moment. If you're in Christ, there is no condemnation to you. You stand blameless before the throne of God. You are accepted in the beloved, Ephesians 1.6 tells us. He will present you blameless before the throne of His glory because you're in Christ. But again, why in the world would we ever want to just stop there? Why would we not want to go after all that is available? So that's where Paul's going to take us. Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death being the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law can do nothing but minister sin and death to me. Why? Not because the problem is with the law. We, we know, Paul says in Romans 7, 12, the law is holy and just and good. The problem is me. If I meet up with a perfect law, I'll find a way to pervert it. If I meet up with a perfect law, I'll find a way to convince you that I'm keeping it, but I'm not. We have people do that all the time. I had a guy tell me one time, I don't sin any longer. Actually, it was his wife. When I was a young Bible college student, I was pastoring in a remote little community church in Arizona, and this guy and his wife started coming, and I could tell, you can look at these people and kind of tell, you know, here's somebody that's really full of himself. And this guy's wife had this sanctimonious look about her, and I was talking to her one time when they got ready to leave the church, and and uh, I said something about how gracious God is that He restores us when we sin. And she said, well, I no longer sin. I said, really? She said, as a matter of fact, get this, I've never sinned. I turned to her husband and I said, is she telling me the truth? And he just looked down at the ground and got this meek little smile on his face. And I said, I don't think he believes you. She stormed out of there. She looked like... Oh. Which she was coming unglued. <laughs> yeah. She she just stormed out of there. She was very mad. Look at this. Verse 3, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. In other words, I was the problem. You were the problem. <clears throat> what the law could not do, God did. Isn't that great? What a great phrase. What the law could not do, God did. How did He do it? By sending His own Son in the likeness of its sinful flesh and on account of sin, He condemned or judged sin in the flesh. He came in a physical body that looked like our body. It looked like sinful flesh, but it was flesh with no sin nature. 
Do you know why the virgin birth is so important? There are a lot of theologians that have thrown out the idea of the virgin birth. Do you realize that the reason the virgin birth was necessary was so that Christ could come into the world without a sin nature, without the taint of the sin of Adam? He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came because of sin. He judged sin on the cross, all while being perfectly free from sin. Verse 4, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Can you see the connection to every passage that we've looked at so far? Not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What are your options today? Well, you have the option of esprit de corps, unity and harmony, power and influence, impact in your community, or you can walk according to the flesh and just be another church. Those are our options. And if we choose to walk according to the flesh, our impact in this world, in our community, in our homes, our marriages, our families is going to be very minimal. Very minimal, if at all. But I'll tell you something that happens in churches, and I've seen it happen when a majority of the people in that church decide that they are going to walk in the Spirit and they're going to live in the love of Christ, and it's like a fire that starts in a bunch of dry wood, and pretty soon you've got a raging fire that is shaking the community. It can happen right here. There's no reason why it should not happen. But we have to get over ourselves. And we have to start loving those who are around us in spite of their quirks and flaws because we all have them. We've all got them. We all have those little things that irritate, aggravate, create division, whatever. Love covers how much? Love covers a few things of sin. Isn't that what? A multitude. What? I thought it was just a couple of things. Love covers a multitude of sin. What did Jesus tell Peter? Peter comes to Jesus. How many times do I have to forgive my brother? You know, Andrew, I mean, he's a pain in the neck. He's always irritating me. Hey, if I do it seven times, is that enough? I mean, Peter's asking. He's, he's trying to impress Jesus. I'm willing to forgive him seven times in a day. Jesus said, Peter, I'm telling you, 70 times seven. I don't think Peter was a mathematician. He was a fisherman. And I don't think he knew how many 70 times 7 was. He might have gone home and got his abacus that night and sat down and figured it all out. 70 times 7. Can I ask you a question? If God asked of you and me to forgive one person 70 times 7 every day, how many times do you think he's going to forgive you? There's no end to it. It's a well without a bottom. Right? So we need to learn to do what the Scripture is teaching, that the requirement of the law, the righteousness of the law, might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let me bring everything we've studied all day today together. When we walk in the Spirit, there is unity, there is esprit de corps, there is harmony, there is a willingness to sacrifice for one another, to serve one another, to consider others better than ourselves, to give way to others, and there's power. 
If we walk according to the flesh, there will always be division, strife, fighting, grumbling, slandering, maligning, envy, jealousy, and it goes on and on and on and on. It's a very simple solution. Paul's not done. Verse 5, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. It's all about, I'm running out of room, mind set. What is your mind set on? Why do people walk according to the flesh? Because that's where their mind's set. That's what they aim at. You know, you take a rifle, you look down the sights, you look at the front sight and the back sight, and out there you see whatever it is you're shooting at, and you have established your aim. We do the same with our mind. Here I am, here's the word of God, out there is the goal that God has for me, and I'm going to keep those three things lined up. And I may not know his goal for tomorrow, next week, next year, I know what it is right now. Right now, in my situation, the word of God says this, and I'm going to look down the sights of his word at the goal that he has set before me. Those who walk according to the Spirit mind the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. The death of what? The death of fellowship with God. The death of power. The death of productivity. Remember what James says in James 2? Faith without works is dead. Do you know what he's actually saying? You may have faith in the things that you believe, but if you're not filled with the Spirit, functionally and operationally, you're dead. There's no production. There's no life. There's no fruit being born. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Back to James chapter 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is what? Enmity against God. All of these guys, Paul, James, Peter, they all agree. They're all saying the same thing. They're all reminding us, why would God repeat over and over in book after book after book after book and I could take you to every single epistle in the New Testament? You know what I'd see? You see it as well? The problem of carnality, the goal of spirituality. The problem of carnality, the goal of spirituality. All the way through those books. Why would God repeat it over and over and over and over and over? Because we just don't get it. We just don't get it. And he keeps exhorting. He keeps encouraging. He keeps commanding. He keeps rebuking. We don't get it. I want to just jump up to Romans 8, verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. I just covered that. It doesn't mean I'm going to fall down and die physically. As far as my relationship with God, how did Paul put it in Ephesians 4? Alienation from God. 
How did James put it in James chapter 4? Enemyship with God. Here Paul is putting it in a different term. It means the same thing. Functionally, operationally, powerfully, you're dead. There's no power. I can take the most beautiful lamp in the world and if I unplug it, it's dead. We have to be plugged into the Spirit. We are debtors not to live according to the flesh. Verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, you will really live. You'll live abundant life. Verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Think with me just on this last point, and I'm going to close with this. How many people in our churches are being led by the Spirit of God? Find out how much disagreement, disharmony, division, slander, maligning, judging. You'll find out. How many people are really being led by the Spirit of God? As many as are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Does that mean that the others are not believers? No. Paul uses two words in Romans 8 for those who belong to the Lord. Children of God, that means little babies. Sons of God, that means mature. Those who are in the habit of being led by the Spirit of God are mature sons of God. That's the word that he uses in this passage. As many as are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the mature sons of God. In verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Little children. Two different words. It's possible to be a child of God and not be a mature son of God. When he used the word huios, it's a word that is the son who is now capable of helping the father run his estate. He is a mature, strong, reliable, dependable, productive son. That's what verse 14 is talking about. Could I just suggest to you, you know, in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3 and in James chapter 1, James and Paul both use an illustration. What does James say? Some people are like a guy that looks in a mirror and he sees himself, he walks away and he forgets what kind of man he was. The Word of God is a mirror. It shows us two things. Number one, the glory and the perfection of Christ. Number two, where we fall short. As we look into the Word of God this morning, can we say, I am walking and living as a mature son of God? That's the real question. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to tell you a story. It's actually a story that has a story within the story. And it's a story that's found in the Bible. And everything that we've seen all day long, and I know I've been hitting the same thing over and over and over, but I'm doing it because Paul does it, James does it, Peter does it, John does it. The whole book is full of the same story over and over. Here's where you ought to be. Here's where you are. What's the problem? You should be moving forward. Instead, you're moving backward. What's the problem? 
You should be reflecting Christ. Instead, you're reflecting the world. What's the problem? That's what kills unity in churches. That what, that's what destroys esprit de corps. Esprit de corps, to quote a French field marshal from the military in the 1700s, I can't remember the guy's name, and I'll have to paraphrase the quote. He said, individual valor and courage never wins a battle. He said, esprit de corps is when an individual feels that they are a part of the best unit and they are proud of their unit and they are going to prove together with the other people in the unit that they are the best. On the battlefield, they will stand when others will flee. Why? Because they have esprit de corps. That's what we want in our churches. Our churches should be a band of brothers. I hope as a result of the time we've spent together today and the time that we'll spend tomorrow, that there will be a little more of that in your congregation, in your individual life, that you will realize how high is the standard that's set before us and that we'll begin to live on that plane as the Spirit of God is constantly leading us to higher ground in our own personal spiritual life. Tomorrow, the story that pulls it all together I'll see you then. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. If there are no questions, I'm not going to delay. We're going to be out of here. Okay? So if you have a question, think of it. Be ready to ask it. If not, we'll leave. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you for your word. The repetition is absolutely amazing. Over and over, the same things are being dealt with. And over and over, we look at it and we go our way and we forget that it was describing why we're failing, why we're weak, why our churches are divided, why, why are we not drawing people from the world? Maybe it's because we don't look like Christ. The common people flock to him. Maybe if he began to live in our churches, they would begin to flock to us as well. It's our prayer that this would be so. Help us be the kind of people that reflect the love of Christ to the world around us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.